0: Let's pray as we go to God's Word this morning. <coughs> Father, we recognize that without knowledge of You, we are lost and wandering people in the world. and We praise You for the beauty and the clarity and the, the solidity of Your Word. We thank You for revealing Yourself to, to Your family. And we bless You because You've made us a part of Your family and You have spoken life into each one of us who were formerly dry bones. I pray that this time now would truly be a, a service of your word to nourish and strengthen and grow those, those muscles and sinews and vessels of, of the new man that you've made within us. God, uh, teach us to stand firm in true grace that you've given to us. And let us, let's not stand on, on feeble platforms of those temporary fixes that we we are distracted by, but may we be ever satisfied by the present streams of living water, never enticed away by the, the mirage of false graces, but give us peace in Christ, amen. Let's stand and read God's word, 1 Peter 5, 12-14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. Grace is often a, a medicine that's bitter, that's hard to swallow. because as often that as it is a, a sweetness like, like honey, though it can be both. Uh, Hab- Habakkuk was confused by this reality. He cries out to God at the beginning of Habakkuk, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice go- never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So you can hear the exasperation in, in his voice to God. What? gives here, God. This doesn't make sense. I love God's response in verse, or chapter, or verse 5 of chapter 1. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So In First Peter we have co- encountered quite regularly this counterintuitiveness of the glory of suffering with Christ. And we come today, bittersweetly, for me at least, to this final passage in the book. And here in this passage, Peter exhorts us one last time to stand firm in what he calls the true grace of God. True grace of God. This true grace of God often runs upstream from what we would identify at first blush as being grace many times. But God's grace is true grace. And it is the pure grace which flows from His eternal love and pours down on those who are in His family. So Peter's purpose as he closes the epistle is to direct our attention to really the meaning of the book as a whole, that is, God's grace. And God's grace is true grace. And that grace is the soil in which the true, true Christian is to take root, to stand firm. So as Peter describes the purpose of this letter, uh, he begins here with this interesting kind of tidbit of information, and I love this about the letters of the apostles, that you get these little uh, glimpses of the, the personal realities that were the undercurrents to the, to the letters that they were writing, and these are the things of which God built his church. And so he begins in verse 12, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him. I have written to you briefly. So Silvanus is also known as uh, Silas in the New Testament. It's the same man. He was a central figure, really, in the early church. Uh, He was a member of the the apostolic band that traveled around the Mediterranean region propagating the gospel. Uh, He was uh, with a fellow brother named Judas in the book of Acts. He and Judas were... Prominent leaders bringing the gospel, delivering messages uh, to the people. Uh, Silas is, is also known as kind of well known as the man who sang hymns in prison with Paul. And it's interesting, I don't ever think about this, but the letters, both letters to the Thessalonians, were co authored. It begins, both of them, by Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus. And now we read here that he also worked with Peter. And so we're we're only given a glimpse of, of this man, Silvanus, in history, but we know enough to know he labored hard in the kingdom, and enough to know that I would look forward to talking with him on the other side. I'm sure he has some good stories. Uh, but Peter here clearly highly esteems Silvanus, as he calls him, a faithful brother. Which kind of brings us to a question that's kind of debated amongst scholars, is what role did Sylvanus play in the transmission of this epistle. Peter's commendation of him here as a faithful brother is similar to those of Paul when Paul is commending the the people who delivered his letters uh, as couriers. And, as I understand, an ancient courier is much more than a mailman. He was somebody who served as kind of a representative of the person sending the letter. So it would seem that Peter's commendation may have the effect that that if Peter was the courier of the letter, he would be uh, building trust in the recipients. That's why maybe why he says he's a faithful brother. Uh, so he may have been the, the deliverer of the letter. Uh, more than that, though, traditionally it's been pointed out, especially by unbelieving scholarship, that the Greek in First in Peter is too refined for a simple Galilean fisherman. Uh, which is actually a point that has received some solid scholarly pushback that he may have been able to, to write that well this late in his life. Uh, but the traditional answer to that that question is, well, Silvanus was obviously Peter's amanuensis He was the scribe. Peter dictated the letter, as, and Silvanus wrote it down, uh, which to me is a, a very probable solution, and it's very possible he was both amanuensis and courier with this letter, and really we will probably never know exactly the role uh, Sylvanus played here. But if there's anything, I think, that's to be gained by way of practical application from Peter's commendation here, to me it's this. It's that neither God nor His apostles transmitted truth via cold, dry, textbook-flavored data compilations. These were real people in real-life relationship with each other, dealing with situations, and God used them to write and to transmit this letter to to Asia Minor. And it's amazing. It's a wonder of all wonders. Here we sit in Newcastle 2,000 years later, 5,600 miles away, poring over the same letter, trying to see what God has for us. He could have spoken more directly. God could have, and occasionally... Through history, he has uh, rarely, but in his providence, he chose to have men, regular men, speak from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We read in Second Peter. So that's why we approach this letter, this this letter from one obscure ancient fellow to a, a, an obscure group of people. We approach this letter with the reverence that we do. And we receive it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. When God carried Peter along through the Holy Spirit, Peter saw this need to exhort, to testify, to declare to these people in Asia Minor about the grace of God. And that's what we read here. It says that he was exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Exhorting and declaring, or I like better... The translation exhorting and testifying i think that's a more accurate word testifying but it was peter's purpose in writing to exhort and to testify and he wrote to exhort the saints exhorting means simply uh, to call upon to do something to implore uh, to animate to encourage action there are many exhortations in this letter exhortations to believe to think to hope to do one thing or another These exhortations of Scripture call us to live out the doctrine that we believe. Peter, time and time again, in this letter, issues a passionate apostolic imperatives in order to animate godly living. And these imperatives are, are not the mere opinions of man, but the very commands of God we are to live in obedience to. So the call to hope fully in the coming of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is a command. You're to do that. To suffer for the good is a command to cast off the flesh, to be self-controlled and sober-minded. All of these commands are things that the spirit-born Christian is both called to obey but also enabled to do, to live out as regenerate people. Peter does not command these things out of a mere pleasure of flexing his apostolic authority. These are meant to encourage and to support the Christian who is enduring suffering. So I kind of think of the exhortations of Peter a bit like a general on the battlefield. These are the things you must do to counter the attacks of the enemy. But also, not just like a general, but also like a father giving instructions to his child... I think of maybe a college-age child who's frustrated and confused by the difficulties of the world. The father instructs him; he teaches him. These commands are meant to act, function in that way. So these commands of the Bible in First Peter are for the regenerate man, truly for our benefit and for our encouragement. Psalm one nineteen or Psalm nineteen says, "The law of the Lord is perfect." reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So exhortations and commands, sometimes we feel weighted down by them, but we ought not to, therefore are good. He also says here, he uses the word declaring, or I said testifying, I prefer testifying, which means to bear witness to or to attest. And most often this word is used in the New Testament of a testimony by a person who has had direct personal experience with the thing they're testifying about. First John 1 is a great example of this. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it. We've seen how Peter's life experiences have played into his theology throughout this epistle. Everything from his time with Jesus, hearing him teach, uh, to Satan asking if he can sift Peter like wheat, to his denial of Jesus, uh, to the restoring call of, of Jesus to shepherd the sheep, and his continued suffering and proclamation of the gospel. All of these experiences produce in him a message which bears witness to the true gospel, testifies. Now, we as Christians love testimonies. Uh, some groups of Christians love them maybe a little too much. But it really is a profound joy to listen to a believer bear witness to what God has done in their lives. Everyone from somebody like me who's been a Christian for they were a child to, the most radical conversions are all wonderful stories and testimonies of the things that God has done. How much better then to hear Peter, who knew the Lord himself, who walked with the Lord and heard him teach and was commissioned by him. He writes here pastorally as a man who knows personally the blessedness of being born again. Peter goes on here and he describes the content of his exhortations. Uh, He says that it's the true grace of God. That's what he was exhorting and testifying to, the true grace of God, which is opposed to false grace of God. He says, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Well, what is this? (laughs) What is the true grace of God? And I think it's the whole book. I think it's the whole letter. This, what I've written to you, is the true grace of God. And this true grace, as I, as I opened with, runs counter to what any natural man might call grace. In the book of 1 Peter especially, you know, perhaps we'd call freedom, freedom from pain grace. Or comfort or worldly satisfaction might be seen as grace. But I don't know that we would naturally be inclined to call persecution or suffering for the good or malignment, or ostracization, or living as outcasts, and exiles, and strangers in the land. We call those things grace, of our own accord. But these things are grace, they're true grace. Peter here in this book has placed before us this great banquet of grace, and it's all grace. It's not as though the Jesus parts and the glory parts are the meat of grace and the suffering parts of the bones of grace that we cast off, the whole letter is grace. Because in suffering, we join with Christ, and we join with the household of faith, and our own faith is tested to our good. And as we've seen so many times in in this letter, a view to true grace is always forward-looking. Our present circumstances are not necessarily the litmus test of grace. It's in letting the sure hope of our glorious future define what we are today. That is grace. And I've tried to come up with a way to summarize the whole book as saying, this is grace and you know you can write down the doctrines and put the little verse number beside it but that's hard to pay attention to. I'm aware. And so I've written a creed and I ask that you not read it aloud with me, I won't ask you to read something you've never read before corporately. And I, it's been made clear to me even through our study this morning in Nicaea, you don't just make a creed. So don't take this as, as an ecumenical creed. This is something I whipped out to try to make sense of the whole of 1 Peter to say, this is grace. When Peter says this is true grace, this to me kind of sums it up. So. We believe in God's election of a particular people unto himself. We were once who were once not a people, but now we are a people. We are resident aliens, sojourners and exiles in the world, enduring suffering, persecution, malignment and disdain. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope of a sure inheritance, final vindication and eternal glory. Our Father has taken us from our natural family, futile and ignorant, slanderous and idolatrous, and adopted us as His own children, who are privileged heirs, ransomed by perfect blood, brought to life by a divine word, individually living stones, corporately the spiritual house, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are united with Christ. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His glory is our glory. We follow in the footsteps of our dear elder brother, whom, though we do not see, we love. Learning to be holy, love the brethren, grow up into salvation, mortify the flesh, to be free to submit in citizenship, vocation, and in the church. And in the home, to suffer for righteousness' sake, be self-controlled and sober-minded, and resist the roaring lion, eagerly anticipating the grace which is ours on the day of revelation. This is true grace. In it we stand firm. So I hope that, despite the typos and so forth, and the weakness of my own skill in writing, I hope that that summarizes something of the sense of true grace as Peter sees it here, as he says, this is true grace. And if we have this identity of being a part of this family of God, no suffering, no devil, no mocker will ever be able to shake the hope of the saint firmly rooted in that identity of being a member of the family of God. Because we are members of that family, the family of God, we love each other. The ancient church here displays this in brief, but beautiful and practical ways, here in verses 13 and 14. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ these passages, the intros and conclusions of books are, I think, oftentimes neglected. They are by me. I read through them quickly in my own reading. In in our emails, we may have an intro and a conclusion, but the meat, the substance, is always the body. But there's so much meat in these little sayings, these conclusions, and introductions to these letters. We see here in verses 13 and 14, as well as Peter's commendation of of Silvanus in 12, but there's a depth of personal relationship involved in this epistle. Even though Peter doesn't know these people personally, he's never met them, he clearly does care for them. He believes in the unity of the church and promotes it uh, corporately and locally. So, she who is at Babylon, its kind of cryptic, who is she who is at Babylon? I believe it's the church at Rome. I believe he's writing from Rome. I believe. This is he's describing the church at Rome. Uh, most are in agreement with this. Calvin, uh, he has some some ups because of, he goes on a bit of a tirade about Peter and the papal see, and he he I think he's influenced to disagree. Uh, but most people believe that this he's talking about the church at Rome. Uh, Calvin kind of concludes that he's in the actual city of Babylon, which, from what I understand, is little more than a ghost town at this point. So it's more likely he's using figurative language, speaking of this, um, and this is a good way of thinking of it, speaking of the capital of the kingdom to which the people of God find themselves exiled. So in that day, it was Rome. Uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation, seems to speak in similar terms about Rome. But it's truly amazing, and I think it it can't be a coincidence that Peter begins the book and ends the book with exilic language. He begins, "...to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, here at the end, to she she who is at Babylon, greets you." And this theme of exile runs through the book. In the the middle of the book, he says, "...beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh." And the theme of election, notice he says, "...she's chosen like, like you are." This theme of election goes hand-in-hand with the theme of exile. The beginning of the book, to the elect exiles. Here in the middle of the book, to a chosen race. And then here at the end, she who is likewise chosen. So the church at Rome is a member of that same chosen family in exile as the churches of Asia Minor are. And this is very much like God's dealings with Israel. Israel went into seasons of exile and these seasons were often cause for despair how long o oh lord you hear you hear them crying out to god don't you hear how the nations are saying that you have abandoned your people will you leave us here forever have you abandoned us but god's promises are always sure his choosing of the people is set forward as an assurance there will be a king on David's throne again. I will keep my covenant with Abraham. He says in Isaiah, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying, To you, you are my servants. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So, Because God has chosen his covenant people, we can be confident that he will keep us even in these days of exile. Peter goes on here and he includes uh, Mark, my son, in the greetings. So this is most likely John Mark, of whom we read about in other books. And he had a, also, like Silas, a long history with the apostolic band. We know his co- cousin Barnabas and Paul had a disagreement over John Mark because at some point John had or Mark had dis- abandoned them. Barnabas thought, well, we should bring him along on this missionary journey. Paul said, no, we can't, he can't be trusted. So they split ways. Barnabas and Paul split ways. Barnabas took Mark. Paul took Silas. But by all accounts, Mark vindicated himself, at least before Paul. Paul, writing later in his life, said, Mark is very useful to me for ministry. To bring him along, is what he said. He also, Mark, was involved with the ministry of, of Peter, as we see here, and it's thought by many that Mark's gospel, the gospel of Mark, is really Peter's gospel. Peter proclaimed, Mark would follow and listen, and he is the one who recorded Peter's recounting of the gospel. Yeah. It's also speculated. It's kind of funny. You remember at the end of Mark the ru- young man when Jesus was being arrested and his robe gets torn off and he sprints off in the nude. Some speculate who would know that except Mark himself because mm-hmm. perhaps it was him as the young man, but we don't know <laughs> that for sure. Uh, but Mark, like Peter and like Silas, is interested in the goings-on of the church in Asia Minor, he cares enough to say, "Hey, you throw my name on there." I greet them too. I find those types of greetings encouraging. That that the church is composed of living, breathing people who are spread across the globe. You know, there's congregations I hold dear around the U.S. Some of whom I've met, some of whom I don't know very well. You know, think of congregations in Colorado Springs, Montrose. Lyman, Roswell, Wetmore, Canyon City, Pueblo, Tucson, Ball Ground, Georgia, Leroy, Minnesota, around the world, people I don't even know, I care about. What a delight and encouragement to know that these fellow chosen exiles, sojourning as we are, are all around the world. I got to thinking, wouldn't it be so encouraging if one of these congregations that I mentioned just sent us a letter of greeting, would we not be encouraged by that? I would be inclined to read it aloud in the service. Perhaps we should do more of that type of thing. The universality of the church lived out is a cool drink of water to the beleaguered sojourner. And this is also true within the lo- local congregation. Peter says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, unless you want the cops called, I can't recommend trying to lay one on your brother or sister. Uh, The kiss of love, or as Paul calls it, the holy kiss, was a customary greeting in those days, perhaps akin to our handshake. Uh, But the church, from what I understand, through the years has had some problems because they've tried to formalize this element within our liturgy uh, to the point where it became kind of little more than a ritual and much more of a problem. Uh, ed Clowney says basically the later church would incorporate this into the eucharistic liturgy and it was reduced to this this ritual where the officiating priests would, would put their hands on the shoulders of these people who had their heads bound and the kiss would pass along to the subdeacon and then into the clergy and into the choir and i don't think that's what paul peter has in mind or paul for that matter uh, and Clowney also points out that there's a bit of a revival of this idea when you go to the services and there's that moment, awkward moment where you have to stand up and shake everybody's hand. I think that's maybe where they get some of this from, which I appreciate the this, this sentiment. But I think the point is more the expression of the fervent love between brothers, the, the shaking of hand, the calling of one another brother. That seems to me like a solid equivalent here. And also, it's worth noting that this letter is written not to a church, but to the churches of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, mm-hmm. and Bithynia. So this is, these are regions, different churches. You all, likewise, greet another with this familial love. Now Peter concludes this letter with uh, the, another theme with which he began it, which is the theme of peace says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. I don't know if there can be a better blessing than peace. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. For those particularly who are facing suffering for the name of Christ, peace to you who are in Christ. I love this clowny quote, the roar of the lion or the flames of persecution cannot over cannot overthrow the shalom of Christ's salvation. And say that again, the roar of the lion or the flames of persecution cannot overthrow the shalom of Christ's salvation. Jesus said, Peace, I leave with you, my peace I give to you. not as the world gives do I give to you. let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I'm of the opinion that first Peter is best summed up by First Peter in verse one or chapter one verses three through nine. I think that's the best summary of First Peter. And so that's how I want to conclude this sermon and this series is by reading those few verses. First Peter one three through nine Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope This is true grace. Stand firm in it. Amen. Amen.